Jay, does Nate Gray have any kids? I mean, I know Cable had Tyler. Well, Miles, he had at least a heavily implied one. Or he did until Deadpool killed it. Dude, not cool, Deadpool. In Deadpool's defense, the baby was also a demon zombie who lived on death energy. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 329 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the first time in a long time to some Nate Gray stuff. I mean, not like a ton of Nate Gray stuff, but certainly some... I don't know, he's kind of the specter who hangs over everything in this era, or at least the non-onslaught specter that hangs over everything in this era. He's like if an albatross was way more extreme and had every woman who he came into contact with fall in love with him. An albatross in a mesh shirt. Mm-hmm. Although, unfortunately, Nate doesn't actually wear a mesh shirt that much. Like, in my head, he's always wearing a mesh shirt, but it's only briefly in the comics. He has the soul of a man in a mesh shirt, Miles. Ah, indeed he does. He just emanates it in psychic waves, which probably destroy everything around him because Nate Gray. A psychic mesh shirt. Well, anyway, we'll get to the Nate Gray stuff soon, but I do want to say, so we haven't been covering X-Man since the Age of Apocalypse ended, and we're not going to cover X-Man overall. There is at least one story I want to cover at some point, but I do quite enjoy the times in which Nate Gray overlaps with the books we are covering, because he's fun. He's kind of a dumbass, but I love him for it. He's got a good heart. A good, misguided heart. Oh, he's absolutely a dumbass. He's also a character who's very, very clearly so absolutely engrossed in his own storyline that he has no idea there are other comics going on. Exactly. He's pretty sure that Everybody is just living their lives in relation to his, and that's it. And to be fair, given what a surprisingly big deal he was in the X-Line for a while, he wasn't entirely wrong. I was gonna say, that's a pretty accurate summation of his earlier life in the Age of Apocalypse as well. It's true, it's true. But, before we get to that, we have some unrelated Excalibur stuff to talk about, because this is indeed an Excalibur episode, in which Nate Gray crosses over. So maybe we should do a little bit about what Excalibur has been up to. All right, so Excalibur is a British, mostly mutant superhero team. They are currently working with geneticist Dr. Moira McTaggart and based out of her complex on Muir Island. Excalibur has always had a mixed relationship with government investigative organizations, from the Resource Control Executive to the Weird Happenings Organization. Now... If the Weird Happening organization was basically unit from Doctor Who, then the new secret agent hotness, that would be Black Air, is like one of the more sinister government conspiracies from the X-Files. Black Air has been consolidating power, gathering samples of alien races, carrying out the occasional assassination to cover their tracks. You know, shady stuff. Yeah, they are bad news. Now, Excalibur has an inside man. They count one of Black Air's former agents among their number. That is Pete Wisdom, Shadowcat's current boyfriend. Speaking of those two, who else is running around with the team these days? Well, we have Brian Braddock, who may be Britannic, may be Captain Britain, and may just be Dr. Braddock at this point. We have Megan, we have Nightcrawler, we have Shadowcat, 
And we have Day Tripper. That's Amanda Sefton, Nightcrawler's half-sister slash girlfriend. It's a thing. We've also got two recent transplants to Muir Isle. Those are Rain Sinclair, Wolf Spain, and Colossus, Peter Rasputin. And on top of that, there's Dr. Rory Campbell, now down to three limbs. Um, he will lose several more before the story is over. He is Dr. McTaggart's assistant these days, trying to stave off a future in which he becomes the mutant-hunting Ahab while incidentally moving himself closer and closer to it. I think it was probably a bad move on Rory's part to start uh, reading the International Talk Like a Pirate Day uh, guide PDF every single day. Yeah, no, he's he's basically going into this by by going, okay, if I really study all the things I might become, I can I can avoid becoming them, right? Mm, gaze not into the abyss, lest you turn into a pirate with no limbs. Speaking of the future, Ahab comes from the Days of Future Past timeline, that's Earth 811, and in that timeline, Sentinels have taken over the U.S. by the early 2010s, killing most mutants and imprisoning the rest. We've mostly seen that timeline explored in America, and specifically in the New York metro area. Ever wonder what Britain looked like in that timeline? Well, this arc does. Which brings us to Excalibur number 94, Days of Future Tense. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Casey Jones, uh, fresh off appearing in Ninja Turtles, I assume. I'm positive we've made that joke before. Inked by Tom Simmons, colored by Ariane Lenchoek, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Oh, so you're nicer than I am. I was gonna say you should stick to hockey. Oh, well, there is that. Oh, man. Penalty for high-sticking? Apparently, I haven't seen the Ninja Turtles live-action movie recently enough. Wow. I used to have it memorized. I can't tell if that was a dick joke or not. I don't think that movie could tell either. Anyway, this issue has a cover which, as you might expect, is an homage to the classic Days of Future Past X-Men number 141 cover. That's the one with Wolverine and Kitty Pride, or Kate Pride as the case may be, in front of the big wanted poster of all the mutants who have been killed. In this case, it's basically the same deal, but with Captain Britain and with Psylocke. It opens the same way, too, with the panel of, you know, the list of superhero tombstones, even the same names in the order, the year's also 2013, but... This issue actually takes place in a different timeline, technically. This is Earth 9620, not Earth 811. And I really have to wonder why, because Days of Future Yet to Come, which was, of course, one of the final Alan Davis Excalibur storylines, was very specifically in Earth 811, the main alternate future of Days of Future Past. As for why this one isn't, I don't know. The Marvel database says it isn't, and I'm sure there's some logic there, but I couldn't tell you what it is. So, I have suspicions, and my primary suspicion is because Excalibur fixed that timeline. We know what Earth 811 looks like because we've seen how it turns out. And so, and there wouldn't have been space within that for the events that happen in this timeline to take place. The other reason is because there's a character who has the same name as a character in Days of Future Yet to Come, and is clearly not that character, so we can assume it's a parallel version of her. Oh, you know, that is actually a good point, and we will get to her. I, I love that she shows up. Uh, spoiler alert for something we're going to talk about in like five minutes. Tangerine from Days of Future Yet to Come is here. Kind of. Uh, kind of. But I, I love her there. I love her here. I think I just love that her name is Tangerine because that's a great name. This issue opens, as so many post-apocalyptic stories do, with a happy, wonderful photo of our characters, and then cuts to a burned version of it as we learn what happens to the various members of Excalibur. 
I do like that Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus uh, all headed to the U.S., even in this alternate, alternate timeline. That does tie it in nicely with Days of Future Past, since they were definitely in America in Earth-811. We also find out that Daytripper was killed by her mom, Margali, which, yeah, that sounds right, and Douglock went missing. Um, also relevant is that, that specifically Kitty and Pyotr went back to the U.S. to get married, because they had to be married for the Days of Future Past events to play out the way they did canonically. Yeah, like, we give Warren Ellis a lot of shit for his uh, indifferent relationship to continuity, but good on him. He did his homework on this one, or his editor did. So the remaining team now lives in Braddock Manor, or rather under Braddock Manor, surrounded by the living computer that, as we all know, Brian Braddock's father brought back and built using Otherworld tech, because Brian Braddock's father is from Otherworld, just incidentally— and um, the computer came alive and tried to take over the mansion, I think twice, and killed some people. But it's cool now. That's where they live. Uh, yeah, and later on, the computer turned itself into a solid light hologram and went off on an end-of-life bucket list cruise with a nice old lady. And that was pretty sweet. I guess it came back. Well, maybe there's just uh, just the body of this computer, which is called Mastermind, but like not that Mastermind. I don't know. Maybe its soul is still vacationing in the Bahamas or something. So, who's left on the team? Who's still alive here? We've we've gotten a list of of the folks who left. So who's who's running Excalibur these days? Well, as for who's running it, let's get to that last. But as far as the membership, we have Wolfsbane. But now she's a jaded gothy punk in black leather. She she looks really cool. She's got that haircut that you see Tank Girl with sometimes, where her head is mostly shaved except for this big, like, floofy part in the front that's been dyed pink. It, it looks kind of awesome. Those are called bangs. But, like, floofier. Are they still called no. bangs if they're floofy? I feel like they need a better name. Still called bangs if they're floofy. Okay, fine. She has bangs. Let's call her Wolf Bangs. Psylocke is also on the team, which, you know, that makes sense. She's Captain Britain's sister. She's appeared in Excalibur before. She's a ninja clad in also black leather. Apparently, she went to England after a fight with her boyfriend, Archangel, and that was when everything went to hell and the Days of Future Past stuff all started. And he definitely died. Yep. He, uh, as I recall, was listed as deceased on that big poster that everybody stands in front of in the Days of Future Past timeline. As one is. As mentioned before, we have Tangerine. Now, we saw her in this phenomenal Alan Davis outfit with this big orange poof of hair and rad sunglasses in that timeline. In this one, she's basically just Neo from The Matrix, you know, in black leather. Megan these days is sporting a pixie cut, or at least has magicked her hair into that length. I don't know to what extent her hair can be said to have established length since she's a metamorph. Uh, she is likewise wearing black leather, as is Captain Britain. And the whole operation is run by the one member who doesn't appear to dress in black leather, and that is Pete Wisdom. He is balding, he's in a wheelchair in this reality, which kind of weirdly is the same uh, way he was making fun of Xavier in the last issue when he was coming out of the hospital. I, I assume that's deliberate. It would have been hilarious if they'd ke just kept the swim cap. Oh, that he was just wearing a swim cap and being a surly bastard? Yeah, if 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 the implication was that the wheelchair was real, but he had just decided if he had the one, he might as well just lean into the other. Yeah, although th this Pete Wisdom doesn't really seem to have much of a sense of humor at all. He is super paranoid. Apparently, he only ever sees two members of the team at a time. He barely shares any information with them. And this makes sense, because in this dark future, Black Air 
runs Britain. It made a deal with the Sentinels who took over America that it would get rid of the mutants or imprison them in Britain as long as the Sentinels left that area alone. So you can see him being a little upset about the whole thing. Uh, get rid of, I believe. the They definitely aren't imprisoning them. Uh, true. Well, with one exception, but we'll get to that. And that's complicated anyway. Wisdom has his own assistant, and in this case, it's Karma. And I kind of appreciate that we just get a random X character here, because it makes sense. You have enough chaos ensue, characters are going to move around, they're going to combine in unexpected, interesting ways. And he has a mission for them. Their mission is to... You mentioned that there's one mutant still prisoner, and he's found out who it is. Um, they're going to go to the Black Wall. That's the featureless black, mile-high base of black air. And Is it made of black leather? I feel like it probably is. I mean, odds are. Seems likely, unless that's specifically the purview of the Resistance. Anyway, once they get there, they hopefully are going to find the long-missing Douglock. And all the information in his robot brain. I mean, after all, he's been inside Black Air's base for a long time, so Wisdom figures that might give us the information we need. And maybe we can harvest some of the black leather from the black wall itself, because it's going to be getting cold pretty soon, and we need more black leather for the cold winters. The cold black leather winters with their black leather snow. I'm just really entertained by how this era was nothing but black leather. Was the Matrix out yet at this point? Wait, so they're going to skin the building? Also, the Matrix was black vinyl. I mean, okay, that's technically true. Maybe it's black vinyl that these characters are wearing. It's hard to say. I sort of associate the black leather era of the X-Men specifically with, with post-film. But I guess I guess it could have been building, building on the Matrix at this point. Possibly. I mean, I'm sure there are other important aspects of continuity than this, but I just can't get over it. Like, how many cows would have had to have died for a dark future that was so fueled by black leather? Like, have more mutants died or more cows died? And what about mutant cows? What about those scrawls that got turned into cows by Reed Richard? Well, Miles, one of the remarkable characteristics of comics art is that, as Scott McCloud has discussed, it's it's somewhat symbolic over-realistic. So you can you can see a certain level of detail. You can categorize things. You can, you know, identify a character, but you can't necessarily associate them with a specific likeness. And in the same sense, you can't necessarily distinguish between leather and pleather in a comic book. Oh, man. You know, maybe the reason this is different than Days of Future Past is that it's exactly identical, except Black Air are, like, hardcore vegans, and so they've been doing everything, like, all of this horrible oppression, just to fuel their pleather factories to spare those cows, and also scrolls that are cows. That scans. Yeah, okay. So, vegan Black Air. I'm not saying vegans are bad people, I think they're overwhelmingly good people, but not Black Air. Those guys suck. The idea of Douglock as the key to to unlocking, to changing this future, and specifically to taking down the uprising around it, makes a ton of sense to me considering what we saw him do with Zero way, way back when. Right, right, because uh, I guess it was after Executioner's Song, but before the Phalanx Covenant, Doug Locke kind of talked Zero into being more human, into accepting that he had his own sentience and identity and importance. And given that we have a dark future run by killer robots, like, yeah, okay. Sentient killer robots, specifically. Sentient purple killer robots wearing robotic toboggan hats. Who poop out other sentient purple killer robots wearing toboggan hats. 
Well, one of them does. I mean, if they could all do that, then geez, that place would be filthier with Sentinels than it already is. Maybe they can and they're just all proportional. So like the, the medium-sized Sentinels poop out like human-sized Sentinels. You know, that would explain where all those Sentinels come from in the X-Men arcade game. You fight so many human-sized Sentinels, and they're all color-coded based on their weapons, just like the Ninja Turtles arcade game. Did you know that they're making a new retro-style Ninja Turtles arcade game? One of our listeners told me about it on Twitter, and I'm so excited. I'm very happy for you. I wonder if Casey Jones, the penciler of this issue, will be a playable character in it. Seems likely. Bringing it back around... Anyway, I do really appreciate the narration as Excalibur stealth flies over to the black leather monolith that Black Air lives in. Time passes in scheming and argument. That that sounds about right for this team. I, I like the idea of sort of describing how time passes, because we get time passes or a few hours later or whatever a lot, but time passes in scheming and argument. And, you know, you, you could have other stuff too, like time passes... In bliss and, and innocence, time passes in a dubstep scored montage. Time passes in two podcasters flubbing their lines repeatedly, forcing their patient producer to cut them out so it will all sound smooth later. Time passes, but never as much as you think has. Time passes, passes, puffs. Time passes, and that's how we get many smaller times running around. Excalibur very quickly and efficiently breaks into the Black Wall, but are quickly attacked by, you know what, let's just let Psylocke say what's going on here, because it's great. Techno-organic war liquids using the Brood as a template form? I think that may be the most this-era-of-Excalibur line we have yet seen, even more than the time-passing part. Now, when they see them, they get the impression that the entire place is built of something similar to warlock similar to that material so they figure this must be where he's being held and in fact he is and oh man it is rough when they find him it's just his head his expressionless head who's oblivious to everything that's going on around him attached to the hundred miles of techno-organic thread that they have stretched him out into that powers the entire computer network of the black wall and now they know with absolute certainty how ultimately Black Air got ahead. It's really sad, though, because Douglock, we know that he worked so, so hard to just be a person and not a machine, and we're seeing him turned into nothing but a lifeless, soulless machine. It's all gone. Yeah. He's not even capable of communication anymore. And as the guards get the jump on the team, presumably to kill them all, Brian wakes up. In Earth-616, in the present, because, as we know, Brian spent quite a while going through the entire time stream, and this is one of his memories of the future. And I like what this does, because I think one of the greatest strengths of Days of Future Past, and there are many, is that it sets up the specter of consequence. If the X-Men can't fix all the anti-mutant bigotry stuff, then it's not incon inconceivable that Days of Future Past will happen. So, there are a couple things I want to address here. The first is that you mentioned that he was in the he was in the time time stream, but it's worth noting that he's not just Billy pilgriming it here. There's not there's not like a solid sequence of events that he's 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 moving through. He's what he's seen is one possible future, not the future that's locked in at this point. 
At the same time, his future visions that we've seen so far have all been very specifically true. Like, he saw some stuff with Wisdom and Genosha that just straight up happened. And so having that precedent there and setting this up even as a potential alternate future, I think it does a nice job of making it clear that if Black Air, who are kind of the antagonists of this era of Excalibur, gain power, then a future like this is not inconceivable. So I've got a question for you here. What do you think of Black Air as major antagonists? I think they're a fun concept that fits the mid-90s really well. I mean, okay, yeah, basically they're just the bad guys from the X-Files in a lot of ways, but that type of shadowy conspiracy and having Excalibur be such a straightforward superhero team in some ways, like, I think they make good foils for each other. But I don't know that the execution really lives up to the potential. That's where I keep landing, too. They're a good concept, but they feel perpetually underdeveloped to me. Like, like they're, they were sort of cut from the, the molds for shadowy government organization villain, but the details were never quite filled in. Well, and I think part of that is that with both uh, the WHO and the RCX, we have really interesting characters within those organizations. And with Black Air, we certainly have named characters. There's Agent Skikluna, who I can never tell if I'm saying her name correctly. But the main characters within Black Air are just sort of generic representations of Black Air. Like, there's not a whole lot to them. And if that's the point, then it's something that needs to be played up more, because at this point it's unclear whether it's a deliberate choice, whether they're trying to make this sort of a faceless, inhuman-seeming organization, or whether it's just incidental. Yeah, I, I think I agree with you on that one. But, you know, as far as this story, like, I feel like we have to divorce it from how Black Air will later be used to at least an extent, because if its goal is to set them up as a scary potential big bad, then I think it does a pretty good job with a lot of black leather. Black leather. That's probably what they're called in that dark future. Speaking of black leather or pleather and people who wear it, our next issue is is not Excalibur at all. We are we are making the jump to X-Man, starring the one and only Nate Gray, refugee from Earth 295, the Age of Apocalypse. We should talk a little bit about Nate Gray's deal because A, it's been a while and B, we've skipped a bunch of issues. I mean, aside from that he's hilarious. He totally is. So in the Age of Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister is apparently just as obsessed with making an anti-apocalypse super baby as his Earth-616 counterpart. In the case of Earth-295, that super baby turned out to be Nate Gray, created from the harvested DNA of the Age of Apocalypse's Cyclops and Gene, and artificially aged up to young adulthood before being sent off to be raised by Forge and a political resistance Shakespeare company. Unfortunately, that legit rad adolescence was sadly cut short due to death and explosions, so Nate joined the big climactic fight that ended the Age of Apocalypse and restored the main Marvel Universe timeline of Earth-616. However, after jamming a shard of the nexus of all realities, in this case the Emcron Crystal, not Alex Summers, into a bad guy, Nate was shunted over to the 616 instead of vanishing with the rest of the Age of Apocalypse, at least as far as we know at this point. Obviously, we all know in this, the year 2021, that everything from the Age of Apocalypse is going to come back over and over and over and over again for the rest of our lives and the rest of eternity. Pretty much. 
Since Nate arrived, he started getting psychic nosebleeds from his godlike but increasingly unreliable psychic powers, and has had misunderstanding-based fights with both Professor Xavier and Rogue. Misunderstanding-based fights are in fact what he does whenever he runs into primary X-Book characters, which leads us to X-Men number 12, ironically titled Trust. This issue is written by John Ostrander, penciled by Steve Scrochi, inked by Bud LaRosa, colored by Mike Thomas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And the cover proclaims, up against Excalibur, which, yeah, yeah, that sounds like Nate. I mean, he arrives at the Muir Island docks and is immediately jumped and pummeled into unconsciousness by Excalibur. Okay, and I will absolutely give Nate Gray some credit for this one, because for once, he was not the one to start a fight at all. He just shows up because Rogue told him, after they had a misunderstanding-based fight, that maybe Moira McTaggart can help him with his questions about his powers, and Britannic just punches him right in the face, and the rest of Excalibur piles on and just knocks him the fuck out. For no apparent reason. Like, it's every bit as iffy in the comic as it is in our description. I mean, apparently Excalibur had heard that somebody had attacked Parliament, which was actually the Hulk in an issue of the Hulk that came out around this time. The Hulk, well known for flying up with his short black hair and his incredibly twinky figure and being psychic all over the place. Yes, it's a reasonable confusion, huh? Hulk only want to be extreme teen from alternate dimension. That is the opposite of what Hulk want. I mean, I feel like... To be left alone is plan A, and to be an extreme teen from an alternate dimension is, like, let's call it plan maybe G or H. I mean, I think doing science is somewhere in there. Yeah, that's like B or C. Uh, my, my, my sense of Hulk's personal goals is fairly limited. Obviously, this isn't an area of Marvel in which I'm deeply versed. Oh, dude, did you hear that there's going to be a Gamma Flight miniseries spinoff of Immortal Hulk and Al Ewing and Crystal Frazier are co-writing it? Obviously, I have heard this. I'm so excited. I was also saying that for the benefit of our listeners, but I'm so excited. No, I am too. That's going to be absolutely amazing. So we love Crystal. I, I should I should say if her name sounds familiar and you can't remember where from, but you know you've heard it on the podcast, it's because she was in one of our, our role-playing summer specials. But she is a phenomenal games and comics writer, and she and Al have been working together on and off for a while, and I'm so excited to see them co-writing this series, because this is, this is one of those, like, incredible fusions of awesomeness that I kind of, that, that are why I love comics. Freaking seriously. But anyway, this issue is, I mean, it's all right, but it's not that level of awesomeness. No, it's, 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 it's an X-Men issue. After being generally jumped and knocked out by Excalibur, Nate wakes up in the infirmary, um, and immediately yells in, in true Nate Gray fashion, Come on! You want a mess? Come on! Is that an actual thing people used to say? I think it's like Earth 295 dialect, or possibly John Ostrander dialect. I don't know, I actually really like Ostrander as a writer. I'll forever give him credit for writing my favorite Star Wars comic. But uh, Nate's dialogue is... it's very Nate. Wait, did you imply in there that John Ostrander comes from Earth 295? I don't know, does he? I mean, in that case, know. more good stuff came out of the AOA than I thought. Right? It's, so we've, we've got you know, Nate Gray, we've got Dark Beast, we've got Holocaust, we've got Sugar Man, and we've got John Ostrander. He's, he's balancing out the scales a little bit in the direction of decency. Yeah. I mean, did Sugar Man write a good Star Wars comic? I think not. Well, and in general, I, I get the impression that, that he's, he's 
I, I feel like we would have heard if he were a homicidal supervillain. Ostrander, I mean. Probably. We know that Sugar Man is. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Well, anyway, Moira McTaggart, because she is wonderful, manages to talk Nate down, which is a very challenging thing to do. She explains and she apologizes. Like, she's not, you know, super, super humble about it, but she's just, hey, here's what happened. I'm sorry we screwed up. She is super used to this situation. She deals with a lot of bullshit mutants. No, this is like every third issue is someone showed up and Excalibur jumped them for no reason. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. And Moira offers to help Nate with what he came here for. So, like we mentioned earlier, Nate's powers have really been acting up. They drain him a lot when he uses them. He gets these psychic nosebleeds, as do half the telepaths in fiction. And sometimes they just don't work the way they're supposed to. And so, to diagnose him, Moira does what any physician would do. She puts Nate into this enormous, freaking three-story, mega-science machine with dramatic stage smoke all around and energy coruscating all around the Nate compartment that it has. Like, this kind of reminds me of those single-purpose kitchen appliances that you really shouldn't get because they don't justify the space they take up like you know banana slicers or apple cores or something like she seriously dedicated an entire wing of Muir Isle just to have a Nate diagnoser oh no Miles she puts all her patients in that oh okay uh Rain comes up with a stub toe and Moira's like all right get into three-story science monstrosity and Rain's like "It, it hurts to climb my toe is stubbed and Moira says hey this is literally the only way to do any science with anyone climb up there suck it up rub some dirt on it you know what we bought it we're damn well gonna use it exactly it's like those long long shots of cars in crappy old low budget movies hey we rented this car we're gonna get our money's worth maybe oh maybe she maybe maybe she cobbled it together out of stock footage Oh, that's possible. Or maybe Hank McCoy came by. I mean, we know that he filled his parents' entire kitchen with this elaborate robotic device just to make breakfast, so this seems like his style. You know, we didn't discuss it in that episode, but I've been wondering since then where they cook other meals. I think they just have a lot of breakfast dinners. We used to have breakfast dinners sometimes. They're nice. Yeah, but not like the same thing every day. They're going to die of scurvy. I mean, it kind of goes back and forth, because on the one hand, they're eating a great deal of bacon and eggs, but we also know they have giant tomatoes and ears of corn, so at least there are some, you know, vegetable nutrients in there. Around? You don't know that they eat them. Oh, that's true. Maybe they just collect them, or throw them at passersby. Wow, life on the McCoy homestead is, uh, colorful in your mind, huh? I don't know much about farms. I assume that's what happens. Nate isn't reminded of breakfast for dinner, he is reminded of the Age of Apocalypse slave pens, and Moira is reminded of both her son Proteus, whose powers consumed him and she tried to treat, and Phoenix, whose powers consumed her and she tried to treat. And that is an excellent callback, and it actually makes this worthwhile as a specifically Excalibur story. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. We should add that part of the reason that Rogue sent Nate to Muir Isle is that he's concerned that he might have the legacy virus because of the way that his powers have been uneven. Exactly, and that's something Moira, at least initially, is concerned with as well. But in the meantime, Nate gets sent away from the giant breakfast-for-dinner science machine and watches the sunset with 
Wolfsbane, who tells Nate about how she used to come out to this cliff to watch the sunset when Moira would tell her these stories of shipwrecks and lost treasure. And Nate says, Hey, let's go find one, grabs her by the hand, jumps off a cliff, and uh, parts the sea Moses style. I actually really like this. Like, we give Nate a lot of shit. I mean, okay, probably more shit than he deserves. Because, you know, he starts fights for no reason, he's a hothead, he's excessively 90s. But I think this cuts to the core of the character's appeal. He's incredibly, incredibly powerful, but a lot of what he wants to use that power for is to connect with people, is to just do nice things for people. And yeah, this is over-the-top and excessive, but it also shows Rain something she otherwise never could have seen, the old wrecked ship that actually is under the waves near Mir Isle. Very cool. Yeah, so, Nate, we salute you. Please don't fight us for no reason. Now, after that neat moment, things go drastically downhill. Nate senses another mind, and he rips through a wall into the Muir prison where he finds Spore, who lies like a rug about why he is in there. You may remember Spore as a former acolyte who has been treated for his uh, being an evil, evil supervillain in Muir Isle. Rory Campbell has been trying to treat him and lost a leg for his trouble. Uh, Spore tried to get Nightcrawler to kill him at one point. Spore is not a good guy. No, he is not. Um, and he is, he's a very murdery guy. But what he tells Nate is that actually... Uh, he is he is just a lab rat for horrible experiments, and he has been imprisoned for no reason, and that's what Excalibur does. They are just a front for that. And Nate, who has memories of a very similar life, absolutely believes him and immediately goes on a rampage. And he starts by going after Moira and violently reading her mind, and then cutting her off when she tries to explain what he pulls out of it. Explain what? That you've been talking to Xavier? Reporting to him? That you're afraid of me? That everyone on the island is with you? Or that you're now saying I'm gonna die? That my own power is destroying me? I thought you said I was gonna live! You betrayed me! No, he's technically Cable, but he's definitely got some strife you're not my real dad energy going. Oh, Nate is hardcore strife. I completely agree. And... Nightcrawler and Colossus, who are paying, playing Battleship on a cliff face, see the lab explode from the outside. Okay, but the important part here, did you see what they're drinking? It looked like beers. So, it was a beer-style bottle, but it had a face, a specific type of face, and it was like purpley red. I'm not positive... But I think that maybe a squeeze-it, which you may remember from the 90s as those, like, squishy plastic bottles that had different kinds of super high-fructose corn syrupy fruit drinks in them. And, like, each flavor had a different kind of character's face that was the bottle. Like, there was the nerdy one, the grumpy one, the silly one, and two separate ones with boxing gloves because that was the punch flavor and, you know, punch. Um, that stuff was not very good, but I loved the packaging and I loved that there was, like— this entire implied culture of colorful drink people, and I wanted to know more about them, and so I tried to get my parents to buy it, but they didn't like buying sugary things. Huh. Yeah, so I think they're drinking those. Although I could be wrong. Maybe it's just a funny-looking beer. Well, that brings us to Excalibur number 95, Amplified Heart, written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Carlos Pacheco, inked by Bob Wyacek, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. 
And the issue opens with Ellison Pacheco spending three full pages on the X-Men's history, Excalibur's roster, and Nate's history, and I would complain more about this waste of pages if I didn't super love Pacheco's take on the characters. And Jay, you remember some of the stuff that we've covered by this artist, right? Yeah, yeah, he's terrific. Yeah, we saw him do the Bishop miniseries, the Starjammers miniseries, and he's actually going to do a ton of X work after this. So, Nate at this point is tearing the lab apart and yelling true to form, Try and trick me now! Try and trick me now! Excalibur comes running, but is unable to stop him. And finally, what ends up happening is that Mara basically talks him into reading everybody's minds. Basically says, look, you you are doing this based on what you got from a surface scan of my mind and what you heard from an entirely unreliable guy whose mind you didn't bother reading. You want to put those talents to some actual fucking use, kid? I love it because this is exactly what I was yelling at all the issues of X-Man that I've read up until this point in continuity. And Kitty actually has a really good take on why this works. He doesn't know how to argue with her. Guess no one's really called him on his attitude before. He can cope with fights, but Moira's actually talking him to death. One of the reasons that this era of Excalibur's Moira McTaggart is probably my favorite take on the character in all of X-Men. She's a pain in the ass, but she's just so good at it, and she's right, like, almost all the time. Yeah, she 100% adults Nadence's submission here. Which is exactly what he needs. That's like his elemental weakness. Some monsters are weak against fire, some against ice. He's weak against adult. So he finally agrees to read Moira's mind and sees what's going on, gets the backstory on Proteus and Phoenix, gets the backstory on her and the legacy virus. And she explains that, no, you know, no, he thinks that she thinks he's going to die by 21 because she's concerned that his powers are killing him, not because Excalibur is going to kill him. For fuck's sake, kid. I love the implication there. Like, haha, I'm gonna have my team kill him at some random point before his 21st birthday. That'll show him. But he'll never know when it's coming. Yeah, what the hell? We just don't want him to be able to legally drink. Maybe this is some kind of a scared, straight, anti-alcohol kind of PSA scheme that she has. Very unnecessary. Wait, so like conversion therapy? Ugh. Well, well, sounds creepy when you say it that way. I mean, I don't know about you, but the phrase scared straight seems pretty cut and dried to me. I mean, the first time I heard that phrase was back in middle school where they showed us videos of people who went to prison and prison was scary so that we wouldn't commit crimes, which in retrospect probably was not a great thing to do to kids in terms of efficacy or mental health. Yeah, the carceral state is bad. I almost feel like in the 1990s, perhaps some authority figures had some uh, unfortunate techniques that didn't accomplish what they'd hoped. Yeah, it's again, it's almost like it's a natural byproduct of abusive authority in a carceral state. Yeah, yeah, pretty much that. That was just for you, folks who like to complain about our politics bleeding into the coverage. We see you and we hear you. <laughs> yes, we do. Well... Anyway, yeah, Nate is sort of taken aback by this. I mean, he has even has characters like Pete Wisdom cooperating. Whoa. 
And Colossus, who actually a great deal of good use is made of him here, given his recent past of flying into a rage and beating Wisdom up. It's easy to get confused, lash out, stop thinking. It's hard to take responsibility and accept the truth for what it is sometimes. Take the hard way. It's worth it. And this is how you do a small crossover like this one. You make sure that the characters from both books get a little bit of development and that what they've been through to this point is relevant. And I gotta say, I think this issue handles it really well. Like, it's not the most amazing story in the world, but it's well-constructed, and I appreciate that. So, that pretty much wraps that up. Um, with, with his curiosity satisfied, Nate flies off to go get in more pointless fights because you know, he's, he's still Nate Gray, all things considered. And we, in turn, move on to your questions. Matthew asks via email, Which X character is most likely to lead a successful book club? And what books are covered? So successful was critical to my read on this, and I think there are a lot of X characters likely to start a book club that sort of gradually peters out or that no one shows up to. As far as characters likely to not only start one but sustain one, I'm going to go ahead and say Megan. And that the books covered would be an incredibly, incredibly eclectic range. I think that Megan probably doesn't care much about genre or nominal reading level. She's just going to go for whatever looks interesting. You know, that's a really good point. I mean, we've seen that she's really interested and engaged by media. And while she was illiterate when she was younger, like, obviously she can read by this point. And I can see that love of media continuing into the written word. Absolutely, yeah. And she's also someone who's very social and whose consumption of media and whose understanding of it is a very fundamentally social experience, which again, I think would would feed naturally into a book club. Also, I feel like as they were talking about different books, she would subconsciously visually turn into the different characters while they were discussing them, and that would be pretty cool. Oh yeah, I, I feel like she is probably one of the characters by far and away most likely to use their mutant power to cosplay at conventions. Oh, that's a really good point. Man, Megan doesn't get enough love. Like, she's a character that has not often been written well, but I love everything about the concept and the eras in which she has been written well are just so good that I think they really carry the eras in which she hasn't. And she's super enthusiastic. She really likes liking things, and she really likes seeing other people like things, and I feel like, I feel like fan culture would be a very natural fit for her in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I think, honestly, you have the best answer, but if I had to pick a separate one, I would say Prodigy. He has a wide breadth of knowledge, both from when he's had his knowledge-absorbing powers and when he did not have those powers after M-Day and had to really work to learn things himself. He's got decent social skills. Like Megan, I feel like his books would be quite eclectic, but I think he would always select, like, cream of the crop but unexpected examples of different types of books with the potential for great discussion, chosen with this laser-like precision. I feel like that would work for a lot of members of the book club, although probably some would get annoyed with him. Eddie asks via email, If Krakoa can resurrect mutants, why was Duglock there and not Doug and Warlock? Are they considered one person now? Did I miss an issue where this is explained? I'm going to say quickly before we answer this, so I'm going to say first of all, I'm, we're not going to answer this question quite in full because it's a little bit recent, but Eddie, you can find the definitive answer to that in the X of Swords event. For the context leading up to it, so as we know, Doug Ramsey and Warlock both died at least once, Doug in Fall of the Mutants and Warlock in the Extinction Agenda. Apparently crossovers are, are not kind to uh, New Mutants characters. 
So Doug came back to life in a story called X Necrotia, or Necrotia X, depending on who you ask, along with a lot of other dead mutants. Unlike the rest of those mutants, he was resurrected in part using the techno-organic transmode virus that was in his body from back when he and Warlock used to do their subtextually gay Voltron kind of thing. Since then, writers seem to have kind of forgotten about the techno-organic part, or at least what a big part of him it was. He's mostly been okay since then, aside from a legitimately, genuinely problematic internet addiction that Daredevil helped him with uh, during the Hunt for Wolverine storyline. Warlock, of course, as we see him in current continuity, is living as Douglock, not realizing that he is purely Warlock. Later on, he'll just be himself, Warlock. Eventually, during an arc of Uncanny X-Men, during the Age of X-Men era, he will, for complicated reasons, permanently merge with a Madrox dupe and then get killed. So uh, that's the status quo going into the House of X Powers of Ten era. Like Jay said, we learn a lot more about what's going on there during Ten of Swords, and there are some glimpses leading up to it as well. So um, it's complicated, but actually explained. Our explanations are fully supported by our various listeners, and listeners who support us at certain levels get acknowledged on air by various fictional characters and concepts. And so, hey, look over there. It's the techno-organic angry Claremontian narrator. What the hell are you doing, Rob? Why would you... You, you know what? No, n never mind. I don't know why I even bother. God, I might as well be talking to Jennifer Sharp for all the good any of this will do. And, uh, it looks like our signals may have gotten a bit scrambled for the next one because we are turning the mic over to supervillain Nate Gray. What do you mean I'm a supervillain? Who told you that? I'll tear him apart. Femme Complex, was it you? I saw the way you waved politely when I walked by. That was a signal to Apocalypse, wasn't it? You're a spy! You're after me! You want a mess? Everybody's after me! Eat psionic death! You and all the pedestrians and cars and coffee shops and pigeons around you! Ah, she got away. But, Tim Kuru, what are you doing running away and trying to help the injured? I knew it. You're after me, too. You're helping that old lady hobble away. Just like Sinister probably helped someone hobble away one time. This whole town's trying to kill me. You're clearly the supervillains. And if I have to destroy everything in sight based on my poorly reasoned suspicions in order to prove how heroic I am, I will! And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for original illustrations and visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Doctor Strange makes a house call. And Onslaught's Herald makes an appearance. For real this time. We promise. <laughs>